On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you today, sir? I am doing great. And Lance, this episode is another another one in our Missing Maura Murray series. And this is an interesting episode, I will say, because the information we're going to go over is, uh, is kind of new to us. And uh, it's not exactly new, but again, it's new to us. So this is an accident reconstruction report that was made um, by Daniel Parka, who owns Parka Collision Consultants. Now, this is a 22-page report that we break up into two segments. So this will be part one, and we'll have part two in a subsequent episode. It's really refreshing. I think we say it a couple of times during this uh, episode that this was put together by a professional, someone who works in the insurance business, somebody who has been very familiar for decades with uh, accident reconstructions and just determining causes and, and the effects of accidents. So if it's nothing else, it's simply interesting to go over again the the details of some of the damage that's on the car and in the car. Right. So take from it what you will. Uh, we'll present the information and then try to uh, have our own opinions at the end. Um, but uh, we would love to hear what you think. So please comment on YouTube or tweet us about this. We're at MissingCSM or at Doc on Twitter. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoy it. And be sure to check out all of our fine shows at crawlspace-media.com and all of the wonderful shows that we are producing that will be new to you soon. Let's get right into this Parka report. It is uh, an interesting report. I guess you could call it some kind of recreation or sort of at least information regarding the car, Moore's car, and how the accident happened. We were just discussing it's really good to see uh, a thorough, thoughtful, and informative collision report 
from a professional company or from a professional uh, individual. This was compiled by Daniel Parka of Parka Collision Consultants, uh, which is local to the Massachusetts area. And it is a very extensive report. Pretty refreshing to see something like this and, and knowing the source. Good resource. It really is. Yeah. And it was done back in 2010. And uh, it has really just now hit the public. Um, and I kind of I think it's kind of bizarre, the the whole story about that. Um, but without, you know, with with putting that whole thing aside for the purposes of going over the report, maybe we can get into that whole thing a little later. But I would love to just go over the report as information from uh, this fellow, Daniel Parka. And I guess this report is really his thoughts on the car, the collision, what caused the damage. Lance, are there any uh, sort of overview takeaways before we dive in? On the uh, company itself, Daniel Parker's company, Parker Collision Consultants, um, it says that he's been in business. He's got a he's got a really good rating. He's been in business since 1994. This was put together in 2010. So he's had several years of experience over a decade. What was that? 16 years of experience in the insurance uh, industry before putting this together. So that just gives me a lot of confidence that what is in this report uh, isn't just sort of um, connecting dots that shouldn't be connected. Right. And I don't think he makes any broad statements uh, at right. the end or any real determinations, but there is a lot of information that he provides. And he says at the top that this is a synopsis and should not be considered a factual report of what actually transpired just information to gain overview of what transpired. And a lot of the stuff we've been over before, Lance, like the weather on the night of February 9th, 2004, um, Parka here notes that it was a maximum ten temperature of 30 degrees Fahrenheit with a minimum temperature of 8 degrees, and there were no recorded uh, data on winds. He gets this information uh, from the weather station in Plymouth, New Hampshire, which was the closest one that recorded data at the time. So I know we go over it quite a bit, especially in the early days we went over, like, what was the temperature like? Could somebody possibly get hypothermia and how long that would take? Uh, and, and it was mostly taken from um, historical information, newspaper articles. Uh, and I don't ever remember us getting information directly from uh, the weather station in Plymouth, New Hampshire, um, unless, unless it was indirect. And I didn't realize that that's where it was coming from. But uh, this is a this is interesting to see that it was a maximum temperature of thirty degrees, which is two degrees below freezing. So if if there was any, I don't know, residual black ice or something, maybe that could come into play. I do remember the the term unseasonably warm being used, which, for the record, <laughs> is still true about uh, the White Mountains in New Hampshire in February. Uh, you know, twenty five is unseasonably warm at that time of year. Right, right. But to dispel the concept of unseasonably warm, it's probably pretty good to say, like, when I heard that at first, I would have thought, oh, like 45, 50. Like, that's, that would feel to me like unseasonably warm. But when you put it in the context of the geography and the time of year, 30, 35, you know, mid, mid 30s, yeah, that's unseasonably warm. And the next part here is actually kind of interesting, Lance, only in that uh, one of our earliest trolls in the case mentioned uh, the moonlight. And uh, here in this report, it actually dictates that there was no ambient moonlight uh, produced at the time of the collision, 
which is ex- kind of exactly what that old troll Miles Wainwright said, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was funny because this was within like the first three factors in the report. There was the synopsis, what the weather was like, and then the next one is the moon. Like, what was the lighting like? So we know it was at night. We know it was around 7.30, so 7.20, 7.25, 7.27, 7.30. And this report is really cool because it not only states about the non-ambient lighting from the moon, it gives the, uh, the position on the horizon of the moon and of the sun, uh, again, that fills me with a, a a sense of confidence that this is going to be a thorough report. Uh, but to your point, yeah, it was funny to see the moon mentioned so quickly after that being such a talking point back in the day with with a with a uh, a master troll like Miles Wainwright. Okay, and then we get into some geometry, sort of the I guess surface of the road right there, and if it's got any slants to it. We've often said that when you're up there, that is a really tough road to navigate, even during the day, stone sober. And it's further backed up here. I've always had a hard time with describing what that road is like, but this report describes the topography of the road as rolling. And 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 that's really accurate. You you feel like you're sort of rolling along and 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 going along with the uh the curvature and all of the um all of the nuances of the road, and you can see how easy it is to just sort of kind of veer off track, lull you into a sense of uh, like hypnosis or something, like road hypnosis. And the lanes are 11 to 12 feet in width, separated by a double solid yellow uh, line. What I find really important about this, or potentially important, is the gully. Something that we've talked about, uh, Parka here calls it a gully, um, which I guess we've probably referred to as a little ditch um, right next to where the car was found. It is two feet wide and about two, or, and two to three feet below the level plane of pavement and contains a little stream of water. And I think we've definitely tried our best to describe that in the past, and that's the best description I've seen because I find it very hard to describe that. Well, describing it as a as a ditch, which is what I would typically call it, like I would even say like a small ditch isn't really accurate because when you hear ditch, that's like a little bit bigger, right? That's that's more like uh, the car would be nose down in a ditch. Uh, describing it as a gully is 100% accurate. It's a, it's a little gully. It's a little uh, divot of land um, that a car could get hung up in, uh, but you know a more powerful car might be able to get through or back up out of. And Parker notes some signs. Uh, there's a 20 mile per hour with a left 90 degree arrow uh, sign right before the weathered barn as you're traveling east. So that, that and, you know, 20 miles an hour is, is a good speed to take that turn at. Uh, anything more, and you're going to be potentially drifting into other ends of the lane, you know, the other lane, potentially into that gully even. I mean, it's it's a tough, it's a tough corner, Lance. And here's a cool fact that I've never considered. From that sign to the aforementioned curve where Mora's car went, off the road, that's a distance of 250 feet. So she's coming from a speed limit of 35 miles an hour to this sharp left-hand hairpin turn. She needs to drop, you know, theoretically, 15 miles an hour in 250 feet if she was going exactly the speed limit prior to that. So 
interesting. Interesting. 250 feet kind of flies by if you're going around 35 miles an hour to when you get to, you know, 250 feet later. Yeah, so you really have to apply your brake, I would say, uh, not just coast, even though I think Morris car was down a, a cylinder or, or, or a gasket. Um, but you're probably still going to need to apply the brake there. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And something I just learned in this report is the uh, the other sign, which shows just a arrow pointing left, is called a chevron. You ever Did you know that? that? That type of sign that you see on the road is called a chevron. I only knew Chevron as the gas station chain. And so Parka reviewed the car on May 1st, 2010. And you can see some photos there. And he says the vehicle is in poor condition. And uh, there is exclusive damage sustained from the collision. But he notes that photos that he's seen from 2007, the car actually looks in worse condition in 2010. Whether that's because it's out there in the elements or not, I don't really know. But it sounds like it, the car was moved a couple of times. And based on the photos, it sounds like some of that damage could have occurred while moving it. Right. I mean, if you have a car, I, I mean, the, the the Saturn probably wasn't the most uh, durable automobile back in 2004. And if you're moving it and then letting it sit there for months and months at a time, and then you mo- you're moving it again and in a New England winter, you know, going through the seasons, I'm sure there's going to be damage when you're moving a, a vehicle after it sits for an extended period of time. He also goes on to describe the condition of the tires, and while they were underinflated after sitting there for so long, when he examined the car in 2010, he did note that they had sufficient tread, which I know is a question in the community that just inevitably comes up. Maybe her car went off the road because her tires had been balding because the car itself was sort of on its last legs, but according to his report, it had sufficient tread to the proper depth, and he says it is more likely than not that Maura Murray did not experience a tire failure at the time of the incident. And uh, he also mentions here that during their inspection, the front bumper cover was displaced and the driver's side portion uh, hit the ground. And then in his words, he says the inner honeycomb core was also now exposed. He says it was apparent that someone or something had disrupted and or moved the center fasteners of the outer bumper skin exposing the inner core it is unknown as to when or how this action occurred end quote and before we jump to holy crap more than likely it's it was during some kind of inspection i would say yeah if you look at the report the 2007 picture shows the driver's side bumper and then the 2010 inspection picture shows that bumper it appears to be a lot lower to the ground and indicative of maybe damage that was caused in one of the moves. Um, I personally had a couple of cars that were towed back in my youth, and the, there was damage every single time that looked very similar to this. And Parker does go on to say it is unknown as to whether the moving of the Saturn caused additional damage uh, to the inner core of the car, which you mentioned, the honeycomb. And here he says, if the displacement of the core and the damage to the fins was the result of the initial impact in 2004, the intruding object would now need to extend down across the front bumper. However, the facade of the intruding object could not have a perfectly vertical facade, 
as it relates to the Saturn's approach. The core is still not pushed back to the extent of the hood damage to justify a perfectly vertical facade, nor does the hood dent have a perfectly vertical appearance, but rather an acute angled indent. That is interesting. That's probably one of the most detailed descriptions of that uh, that that dent on her hood. And if I'm understanding it correctly, he's saying whatever caused that dent, the intrusion, hit at an angle because it did not continue down to the to the to the bumper, and it obviously was at the right angle and not hit hard enough to extend into the core, right? Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like to me. So it sort of rules out the possibility of like a street sign being the damage because a street sign obviously connects to the ground. Right, right. Uh, this would be something more like, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything that this is what I think, but whatever hit that part of the hood underneath that damage was clear of any, of any, uh, of any intrusions. Whatever connected to the hood was angled in such a way where below that damage on the hood there was nothing else to hit almost like something that was raised like a guardrail or maybe um, what comes to mind is like a, a tow hitch on a truck or maybe a tree branch that's angled out so that you can you know it's not touching the ground like it was a good uh, call saying that uh, it a street sign probably wasn't the case because you'd almost have a straight line or or you'd have something below that uh, hood damage because it's connected to the ground. Right, which is, uh, I feel like, brings us to the, the tree. Um, and because a street, uh, a street sign and a tree sort of, sort of act as the same type of uh, thing unless this tree is sort of has like a mangled shape to it. It, it sounds like the car didn't hit a tree. Now, uh, again, Lance, I think this was something that we talked about on episode one um, as as being what it looked like to us. Um, and so, <laughs> I mean, just to reiterate, uh, that I think I do think it didn't hit a tree. It doesn't sound like it hit a tree to me. Alternatively, if the car dips down into something like a two-foot gully and hits something that's straight and connected to the ground, then the car's at an angle where it could hit something connected to the ground, but the lower part of that damage wouldn't be connected to that uh, object that it hit. Good call. And I do think it's important to note that, you know, some sort of weird things do happen during accidents at times. And uh, yeah, that gully is two feet wide and two to three feet below the level of the pavement. So I suppose that could account for that odd damage um obviously again the the police report does say it hits hit, hit a tree uh we're not calling anyone liars but i think even in the first episode lance we said it didn't look like it hit a tree um and i guess i guess it's kind of good to know that parka does sort of confirm that it doesn't look like it hit a tree like it's not like it hit something straight on so if the damage was caused by a tree it was definitely because of that gully correct that that's uh, that's exactly what i would get as well from that I think that's where my brain would go first, not try to involve something that wasn't there. Like we didn't totally. see a truck that she might have rear-ended. We didn't see a human being that she might have hit. At that scene, the only things that are there are a gully and trees and her car. 
the and the group of trees, not the one that used to have the ribbon, but apparently the group of trees that was a few feet to the left of the ribbon tree was the one that Tim Westman said had a scar on it um, from the impact. So whatever that's worth, um, I don't know. But Tim Westman, at least, uh, one of the neighbors and first witnesses, did believe that the car hit a tree. So in Parker's report, he examines the lamps, which he is actually able to determine that Moore had her high beams on at the time of the accident, or really, I should say the Saturn, but the Saturn had its high beams on at the time of the impact. And he goes on scientifically to kind of describe how he did that. And he says, the filament showed classic evidence of elongation while the low beam maintained its original coil. And this is of importance. Uh, as it relates to the illuminated visual field ahead of the operator at the time of any or all impacts. So good to know. Yeah, really good to know. I, I, I also wonder if the impact caused the high beams to turn on. I think only because the lights were on during the collision was he able to tell. If they weren't on at the time of the collision, they wouldn't have what's described here as a hot shock. And then he goes on to talk about the front amber corner bulbs, which are the turn signals. And he says that it's really inconclusive if the turn signals were on. Probably not important anyway, and probably unlikely if uh, that the turn signals would have been on. That's my that's my two cents that it's unlikely, just being that it's not a turn you need to signal for. Right. And now we get to one of the more interesting parts, Lance. It's uh, the windshield examination. And uh, this has sort of been one of our major public disagreements in the past, <laughs> uh, which, uh, you know, really, uh, when it comes to this case, we haven't had too many, I guess. But uh, I always thought that the damage on the windshield was likely caused by Mora's head. And I have to say, the Parker report sort of uh, makes me feel like it's potentially different. Oh, that's really funny because the Parker report is making me feel like this probably was her head. The only thing that I'm still kind of at a loss at is how her head would have gone over the deployed airbag. But after reading the part about the gully and how the car could have dipped down and caused her to, in this inertia, to move kind of up, I could see it happening. And I could see that uh, causing the, the damage on the windshield. I mean... You're going 30 miles an hour and your car suddenly hits a dip. Yeah. I mean, I think that might have happened. I, I don't I don't know what else that would have been, right? Because he, he describes how it has a smooth feeling. Um, it doesn't have any... It, it, there's no coarse feeling on the interior, which is, I guess, indicative that the uh, impact came from inside. Mm -hmm. So yep, I don't know it. what else it would be unless it's like part of the airbag or part of the steering wheel or something that flew up over her head. Right. Well, he, so he says the placement of the stellar impact is slightly lateral of the driver's seat position and towards the driver's side. The stellar impact is also vertically located five to six inches down from the top section of the windshield and within the tinted area as assigned by the ASI level, which, you know, the, the tinted area, the, the top part of the windshield. So always sounded a little high. And yeah, I think that was always my thought was that, oh, because of the ditch, maybe. Yeah, so Mora was not wearing her seatbelt at the time of the accident. So 
it it could have been sort of a weird angle. Yeah, I, th- I think that's possible. But here in particular, Parka says there was no evidence of any hair fibers and or root within the break. The fracture to the glass was clean with no foreign material and appeared too small as compared to a typical head strike. So Parker goes through possibilities on how this break could have occurred. And uh, the first one he mentions is during airbag deployment when the bag inflates and makes contact with the windshield. He says, however, the airbag fabric had been removed and any attempt to rule this possibility out has been compromised. And he says further discussion regarding the airbag status uh, is coming up. And the uh, second one is uh, by means of the operator striking their head on the windshield during the impact. He goes on to say there was no evidence of any hair fibers and or root within the brake. The fracture to the glass was clean with no foreign material and appeared too small as compared to a typical head strike. So seems like he's leaning away from the head hitting the windshield, which is now causing me to lean away from the head hitting the windshield as well. Yeah, so he says the third possibility would be the driver's side visor making contact while in an extracted downward position and being forced into the windshield by either the operator's forward movement or the deployment of the airbag and or a combination of both. However, this was ruled out as the visor's extreme edge did not reach the central area of brake and evidence within the vehicle supports the visor as being folded against the roof. The fourth possibility is interesting, and that is if an object within the vehicle was projected into that area. There was a liquid stain, as we know, along the interior roof and directly forward of the operator. And he goes on to say it may be affiliated with the stellar break to the windshield if the operator were holding some sort of liquid container and or it went airborne from an unknown origin within the occupant compartment. Yeah, so so it's interesting here. So Parker kind of goes through the most likely things, and then he says uh, none of them are all that likely. But this one, and and this one isn't either. But this is kind of what it sounds like he thinks happened was uh, the drink, I guess that that Mora was holding, or um, perhaps in the car, flew up and broke the windshield. He does say this would explain breakage to the windshield and the aspersion of liquid to the roof. Um, as you noted. So yeah, I guess because of the liquid stains on the roof, that is what led him to sort of determine that he thought that the receptacle that Mora was drinking out of must have broken this. You said it that a lot like weird things happen during an accident. I don't want to always keep hearkening back to accidents I've been in in the past, but I was in a vehicle that flipped over slowly flipped over. I mean, it wasn't a violent accident at all. We just ended up on the side. And after exiting the vehicle, I was incredibly shocked to find that the the back seat, it was a caravan, it was like a, uh, like a minivan, the back seat had come unattached to the floor and flew out the back window. Yeah. And, and we, we weren't even going that fast. And, and it somehow spun out of its attachment in the floor and out the back window. So I wouldn't have been able to explain that if I had come up to an accident site. I would have thought that that car was going 50 miles an hour. We were maybe going 20. Yeah. Now, this is a good point. Um, I have a similar experience. I haven't rolled a car at one time had a, and, a, and a window broke and a bag in the back seat that was not buckled, you know, ended up like 50 feet from the car. It flew out the only window that broke. So it's just, I you know, and, and yeah, it did 
sort of time slows down in those kind of moments, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. So Parker goes on here. He says the interior mirror was missing with the supporting bracket still in place and did not show any sign of damage. In order to take the mirror off the windshield, it needs to be elevated towards the roof line and off the support. To attach the mirror, it needs to be slipped down onto the support. And he says if the Allen screw were loose, the mirror could possibly be dislodged during contact with the operator as they are propelled towards the windshield during a frontal impact. But he says it does not rule out the possibility that the mirror has been removed by police personnel for analysis or was initially missing prior to the accident. Okay. All right. That is interesting. So still a little bit of a mystery on uh, how the damage occurred, I would say. Um, but we'll, let's get into the liquid because that might make it more likely or less likely to us. Right. And one thing that I will take from that is a definitive answer that the impact, what caused that breakage on the windshield was from the inside definitely i feel like yeah i feel yeah i feel like that's a pretty solid answer when the reason is rather black and white it feels one way on the inside and it feels a different way on the outside and depending on how that feels will tell you and in where the impact occurred and he defines it and i don't see any reason to uh think otherwise Okay, and here he's talking about the liquid aspersion, and he says right here, he says, there are often attempts to alter, destroy, remove, clean up, or cover up evidence of a crime, but that traces as well as gross physical evidence may be left in the form of blood, saliva, fluids, secretions, hairs, fibers, fingerprints, palm prints, footprints, shoe prints, clothing, transfer impressions, as well as paint chips, glass, plastic fragments, many of those items being minute and or microscopic in nature, thus requiring the additional use of specialized examination. And then he says, with that said, the interior roof line was stained with a reddish appearance, which was in an area forward and above the driver's position. According to the police report, they classified this as a red liquid and referenced a box of Franzia wine within the vehicle. And as aforementioned, they believe the visor was positioned against the roof because of the liquid um, that was sort of splashed on it. You can kind of tell because if you fold it down there, it's sort of like a tan line in that way. This is another example of why I like this report so much is because this just seems like a very obvious thing that I personally had never considered uh, was the visor up or down. And then you find out it was up and then you find out it was up because the liquid that was sprayed on the on the ceiling, on the roof, the interior roof, covered both the roof and the visor. And when you pulled it down, it had blocked the, the roof behind it. Makes so much sense. Yeah, it's kind of so, cool. It is kind of cool, and but and that leads you to something else. That leads you to say, well, it's probably not the visor that caused the crack in the in the windshield because of this. Well, it couldn't have been, yeah. It couldn't have been because it was up because right. of the uh, the liquid that was covering it, but not what was behind it. Yeah, and then he says the aspersion then appears to have been projected or sprayed across the roof line towards the passenger seat, and he says uh, the spatter did not have classic signs of an elongated nature to the naked eye as associated with blood and did not contain the classic tail. However, this does not rule out the possibility that the aspersion was not of a biological nature without a proper analysis. So he says he doesn't know if it's uh, wine or blood. I think he assumes it's 
wine. But he kind of goes on to speculate, I guess, or theorize potentially that Mora was holding the drink in her left hand and that would have sprayed it across towards the passenger side and potentially broken the windshield. Right. Or maybe she had taken a sip. Maybe she, uh, maybe this was, uh, like a like a vomit stain. Maybe she had taken a sip, got into the accident, and this was something that you know nerves or whatever, and she vomited out what was just immediate, like prior, immediately prior to the accident, um, what she had just ingested. So that I think that's what he was getting at with the bi- biological nature of the of the stain. I was rear-ended once. I was stopped. Woman rear-ended me, probably going two miles an hour. I was holding a cup of coffee, literally everywhere in my car. Did it hit the ceiling? Yes. Everywhere. Again, going back to accidents, shocking how much force is is just in in between two vehicles when they collide. And then Parker goes on to sort of mention these stains that he found. Um, this is something that I never noticed, and I'm not really sure how suspicious or weird this is. I always... Uh, every time got my car uh checked out by a mechanic you always get some greasy stains in the car uh because that's that's how they do their their business um being mechanics covered in that kind of thing so that's kind of what what came to mind when talking about these uh handprints uh it says it's the impression of possibly a left handprint the impression of possibly a left handprint you know what that looks like to me I've been in cars with this, including my parents' car back in the day. That looks like someone who's smoking a cigarette and it's uh and they have the window partially open and that's uh, over a period of I don't know, several months of smoking in the car and the cigarette touching that area. I've seen that I've seen that in two or three cars. People who smoke in their cars. So Parka says there's a stain on the driver's door panel. The area was heavily saturated and had a downward type spray. What was interesting about this area was it mainly was positioned to the vertical border going down the right side, just left of the interior handle. There was also no liquid aspersion on the driver's seat, which would make sense because, uh, you know, Mora or someone was sitting in the car at the time. And as it relates to the driver's door panel, a blackish print pattern was located on the armrest. The print was left of the door handle cup and wrapped slightly along the right edge. It is unknown at this point what, if anything, had developed this mark. Both the interior door handle and window crank had a whitish appearance, similar to the chemicals used to dust the vehicle for forensic prints. The foreign chemical could also have been deposited by the airbag during deployment, given the extended period of time this vehicle has been sitting in the environment. It could not be positively identified. And Parka reviewed this, uh, the car, about six years after the accident. I feel like a lot of these stains and, and marks, and I had previously mentioned that this looked similar to something where anyone who's smoking a cigarette in the car and it kind of touches that area on the door inside, on the on the fabric, the, the cigarette head will touch that area. That kind of looked like this um, just at first glance, and the picture's not great, but he does say that it, it's... Uh, it's right there next to it's to the left of the of the of the crack in the wind the break in the windshield and it's a blackish type smear almost like um he says to the naked eye 
it, it gives a basic impression of possibly a left handprint versus a right with three extended digits pointing towards the roof line. So this could be something where a tow truck driver who had moved it over the course of the the six years between it being stored in this report, you know, a tow truck driver, you can, you can even like kind of do it with your hand right now. If you were to open the door, move something, shut the door, like, you know, this, this feels to me like this is something that happened after the accident, but I can't be, I can't be sure. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel like something that, <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's big. You know, it, it looks like a bigger handprint and it looks kind of sloppy. It looks like it looks like pulling open a door with really no care uh, uh, t- in, you know, making the car dirty. Yeah, looks like grease from a mechanic's hand to me. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. <laughs>